0: Again, my name is Michael, and I am a compulsive overeater. I'm Michael. And I want to thank uh, Don uh, for asking me to speak, uh, even though he conveniently uh, uh, is not here, but uh, he had a business thing, and thank you for taking over, and thank you guys all for being here to uh, help nurse my busy head back to some sort of semblance of sanity. Um, I came to you guys originally in the early 80s, I had gotten sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was coming up on a year sober, and I was smoking three packs a day cigarettes, and I didn't know what to do. And so I started bitching and pitching about it in AA meetings. And uh, old-timers would come up to me and tell me to shut the F up. They didn't care about my cigarette addiction. They just, you know, all they cared about was the drinking. And I got very offended, and I thought I could talk about anything in AA. And you actually can, but uh, I was a very sensitive sober alcoholic at the time and uh, so uh, still am so somebody um I put, put his arm around me and said, Mike, there's something called Nicotine Anonymous. Why don't you uh, check them out? It was, I think, Smokers Anonymous in those days. Now it's known as Nicotine Anonymous. So I went there in Hollywood, and there was like one guy there, and he shared what he was like, what happened, and what it was like now that the cigarette addiction had been removed. And, uh, and I came back, and it took about six weeks, but the three-pack cigarette addiction had been removed. And it was wonderful and uh, he nominated me secretary of that meeting shortly after and there would be many weeks that I'd show up with just a big book and a format and I'd be the only person there and uh, but it kept me smokeless but the only thing is is I put on 30 pounds in 30 days and I started eating very compulsively It wasn't the first time that I was eating compulsively but it was the first time I was aware of it because I was sober you know and, uh, and then so I went to my AA meetings and started bitching about the haagen and the pizza and the, the yogurt, whatever the hell I was putting in my body. And, and those same old-timers said, don't you ever learn what's wrong with you? But I did learn because I knew there was Overeaters Anonymous and I came to you guys. And I, but I didn't say anything. I just like hid out in the back and I kind of listened to what you said. I, I hate to ask for help. And even worse than that, I hate to tell on myself. Uh, that's such a... Important part of this program. When I mess up, and I mess up a lot, uh, I, I, I tell on myself. I'm accountable to somebody, and um, so um, I didn't tell on myself to you guys for about a year. And finally, you know, my weight was going up, and I didn't know what to do. And I raised my hand. I said, "My name's Michael. I'm a compulsive overeater, and I don't. I need help." And you know, I don't know about you, but when you ask for help, there's a higher power in this room that's pretty pretty strong. So Matt M. Uh, who lost over a hundred pounds, you know, gave me his number and he was very kind. And I called him the, the following morning and he wanted to know what I was going to eat. And I, um, I told him I didn't know uh, because I didn't want to know. You know, I, even though I was aware that I was eating like a pig. I didn't know, want to know what specifically I was doing to eat like a pig. And He was very kind and he, he was very gentle. He says, well, why don't you write down before bed what you ate and then call me the next morning and tell me, tell me what you ate. So I don't remember what I ate all those years ago, but I do remember uh, it was probably uh, cleaner than, um, than if I wouldn't have him to talk to, right? So I called him back and I got in the habit of what I now call uh, taking the fifth step with my food. And that's admitting to God, to myself, and to another human being the exact nature of my food, good, bad, or indifferent. And I still do that today. That really holds me in good stead. Um, a higher power really holds me in good stead because the person that I commit my food to, nine times out of ten, doesn't even say anything about it. But I keep asking my higher power, please, God, let me make healthy food choices. Okay. And when I go in terms of the health instead of the calories, although calories are important because the more calories I put in my body, the more I'm going to gain. But um, I'm going to try to just stay focused on that. Try to stay focused because my head is all over the place. I teach little kids, and uh, uh, kindergarten through sixth grade. And my kindergartners and first graders sometimes are just all over the place. And so we have a little routine: hocus pocus, we will focus. Say it real loud. <laughs> and then the second time we do it in, in moderation: hocus pocus, we will focus. And then we go focus, focus, we will focus. And I don't know if it gets them focused, but it sure helps me. Uh, so, um, all right, so I came to you guys, and Matt uh, helped me to get abstinent, and um, after a few, few years with you guys, I started to get complacent, and I started to think that perhaps my case was different, and um, I... Um, I I have a mother that was uh, schizophrenic, literally, she was in the early 50s, they had this uh, operation where they gave you a lobotomy, you know, if if you were suicidal and and in danger. So my mother, you know, was one of the first to get that operation. And uh, she had a lot of shock treatments, she loved shock treatments because she said it was the only thing that shocked her back into reality temporarily. So, um, so uh, anyway, so I thought that perhaps I might have a little mental illness in the morning when I didn't want to get out of bed and go to work uh, because of the genealogy of my, you know, oof. I'm really trying to uh, focus here. You know, I have a sponsor in another program that people that come in late, well, including me, he says, "Is our starting time inconvenient for you?" And uh, so I have his voice in my head, and I'm not I'm trying not to to uh, judge people for being who they are, because God knows I've come in late many, many times, but it's a little distracting to the person who is up here. I um, have no idea where I was. Um, oh, my mother in the mental illness. So when I call people in program, especially my sponsor, and uh, tell him that I wanted to get out of a job that I felt was dead end, And uh, he told me, well, you can quit your job, but get yourself another job first. Um, I usually listened to him. But because I got distance from you, and I started getting real heavy uh, into psychotherapy, and in those days, uh, teddy bears were real. they we're prevalent, you know, and especially if you took, a, if you're a guy and you took a teddy bear or if you're a girl, I don't, you took a teddy bear, you get a lot of attention from, from, in my case, the opposite sex. It was kind of nice. And uh, so I take my teddy bear and, and I... You know, and then I was taught to, you know, not hit the teddy bear, but we had tennis rackets. God, why did you do that to me, Grandma? You were never an And it was just a wonderful way of getting rid of your anger, but I never got rid of it. It just made me angrier. And then I would come to you guys, and I'd, um, and you tell me, Michael, shake people's hands. Go, go out and shake somebody else. Go help somebody else. So you guys were telling me to help others and to get out of myself. And therapy was telling me to be introspective and analyze and think about all the, feel the feelings. And I, and I, and I was going crazy. So what does my mind, my keen mind, tell me to do when I'm not calling my sponsor on a regular basis? Go to therapy. Don't, you know, program's not that important. So... Um, so one day I wanted to quit my job, and I called my sponsor, and my sponsor was away from his desk. So I called one of these other people that was not necessarily in program, and he, I said, I want to quit my job, and he said, go with what's in your heart, Michael. And I gave notice. And uh, I was at this job for 12 and a half years, and they, I gave two weeks notice. I'm sure they were probably happy to be rid of me. I would never commit to this job, because in those days I thought I was an actor, And and they'd say, Michael, why don't you come full-time? And I'd say, well, no, I've got to be available for auditions. And so I'd leave at noon, and I'd go to the beach. And I'd hang out and get a tan and go swimming, just in case an audition ever came my way. (laughs) And uh, so uh, my fear of commitment, it's it's a big character defect. So anyway, I quit the job. I'm living easy. I'm going to therapy. I'm going to the beach. And And rent is due, and and I have a little bit of savings, and after a few months, the savings is gone. And the lady that I'm living with is not accustomed to supporting me in the manner that I think I should be supported. And uh, that lady is now my wife, by the way. And um, so it got scary. And I was looking at people and the world turned ugly. I was in active compulsive overeating without necessarily practicing the disease, but my head was real busy and I hated everybody and everything. And I went to a meeting where I saw Dr. Paul. And Dr. Paul is in our big book and he's got the story on acceptance. If you haven't read it, it's a great story. I relate to him a lot. And he stood up and he said that never in his 20 some odd years of sobriety had he had a problem to which the 12 steps did not offer him a solution. And to me, that was like a breath of fresh air because I was so far away from you guys. And um, so I was too afraid to ask him for his phone number, but his wife, Max, was sitting in the front row. And I came and go, my name is Michael. Can I get his number? And she gave me his number. And I, much like Matt did, you know, in my first days with you guys, he was sort of nurturing and gentle to me, and he asked me some questions. And um, he very um, simply uh, suggested that perhaps I get rid of all this extracurricular stuff. I have seen three, psych, three shrinks, three therapists, group therapy, and to put down the antidepressants that I was taking, perhaps. And, uh, and I trusted him because he was a doctor. So I quit all this other stuff and I started uh, calling Dr. Paul and they used him as a sponsor until one day he got angry at me because I called him one day and I told him I stayed home from work and I did some behavior that made me feel uh, bad. And he said, Michael, he said, in abstinence and sobriety, we do stuff that makes us feel good and avoid doing stuff that makes us feel bad. And I said, well, Dr. Paul, that's why I did that other stuff, because it made me feel good temporarily. And he said, you know what? He says, I, I think that there's a part of you that wants to recover, and there's a part of you that doesn't want to recover. He says, I'm going to leave you alone with yourself for a while. He says, don't call me for a while. And he hung up the phone. And uh, I was sort of devastated because I had been alone by my, with my disease before I came back to the program. So as a man of desperation, I quickly uh, uh, finished the fourth step that I was working on, and uh, I called Paul a few months later and I said, Paul, I left a message on his machine, would you listen to my fifth step? And he called me back and he said, oh, it'd be great, Michael, that'd be a great way to start the new year. And then he called me back again and he said, you know, Michael, he said, the fifth step is supposed to be a spiritual experience. He says, I have a bad character defect. I judge you. I judge you that you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And he said, that wouldn't be fair to you to have me listen to the fifth step, and I go, but, 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 he says, but thank you anyway, Michael, and I thought, oh my God, I'm being rejected again, <laughs> so I went looking for people to listen to my fifth step, and uh, there was a guy in downtown, he was a big justice of something, he showed me his chambers, and, and he was so nice, and I showed him my fourth step, and it was like this, and he said, could you condense it, and I knew he wasn't the one that I didn't want to, so along comes Richie in an O A meeting and he said you know Michael I talked uh, for three days it took me to read the, the fifth step to a sponsor he said if I, if he had to listen to my shit I'll listen to yours he says come over to my house and uh, I came over and sure enough it took three days it took not three days straight we definitely broke for lunch after all the the crap and you know by the end of the third day those of you who are afraid to do the fifth step it's just the same stuff over and over different people the same character defects and I was just glad to be be over with it and I was very happy for Richie's patience and Richie was a, a bit of a um, strong sponsor, you know. And if I told him that I was eating cheese, you know, one day, he'd say, why are you eating artery cloggers? <laughs> Ottery cloggers, cheese, meat, why are you eating that shit? And so, uh, so you know, and then I kind of was hoping, because Richie would go, like we all do, like I do, you know, the majority of the days are good, but sometimes you have bad days. So on Richie's bad days, Richie wouldn't say anything about the artery cloggers. But when Richie was on a roll with his food, everything I ate, he was very conscious of and aware of, and he would point it out to me. So Richie's uh, still very much alive and well in North Carolina, and I call him periodically. But when he left, uh, I had to find a new sponsor, and it's not easy. I'm the kind of a Klingon sponsor that wants to stay for life and um, and it's a good thing I think for me because I observe and of course I judge other people that have lots and lots of sponsors and my head is busy enough and to go to somebody new and to gain the trust of somebody you know it takes a long long time so sponsor relationship is really sacred to me and uh, and I hate it even when my sponsor goes out of town you know because I have to be accountable I don't have to I choose to be accountable to somebody else and it's, it's painful just to get back on track. But I do it anyway because I've been enough in my disease to know what it's like to, to go it alone. And I love to be alone. And that's the paradox of the whole thing. I love to just sit by the TV and, you know, look at a Clipper game or watch the Academy Awards and, you know, plan my abstinent food but, but keep, you know, eating it while I'm watching. I like to anesthetize myself with food you know that's the nature of my disease and the nature of my disease also is that somehow some way I'm going to be able to eat like a normal person and when that comes up when I'm accountable to another human being with, the, with my food you know God shows me that uh, okay Michael you're in the disease what are you going to do to get back into the solution so um, make a long story short I have got like what seven minutes to tell you that for a person that doesn't want to get out of bed in the morning no matter what my job is I have a wonderful job, you know. When you know when I show up, and I show up most of the time. Um, and um, the lady who couldn't support me in the manner to which I was accustomed is now my wife, and we've been together for about 31 years, and uh, we have uh, three children together. Um, uh, what my uh, daughter's 23, and my youngest daughter's 19, and my son is 17, and I have a. A son from a previous marriage who's 39 who made me a grandfather a couple of years ago and he um, went from a mental institution literally into the hands of the an Alcoholics Anonymous and he's been clean and sober now for nine years and he found a girl um, in AA and they have a nice sober home so God has been really good, good to me despite my fears and uh, I'm uh, pretty much in my disease a fear-based uh, person And so what I do is what it says in the big book. Um, You know, we ask God to take away our fear and direct our attention to what God would have us be. Um, Recently, um, I've been uh, reacquainting myself with a loving God. Um, My sponsor said to me the other day, uh, why don't you just ask God to stay in the moment? And I said, well, that's the scary part, the moment. When the kids are all over the place and I'm trying to teach, I want to get out of the moment. When my wife has got clutter over here and she's doing, I want to get out of the moment. And um, somehow, I don't know what I did, uh, but um, trying to explain it really sort of takes the power away from it. But a loving God, you know, lets me breathe in the moment, especially when I'm experiencing stuff that I don't want to, and puts some positive thoughts in there instead of the negative stuff that goes round and round and round. I want to read something from uh, Dr. Paul's story. And and he talks about um, emotional sobriety. And um, I mean, we can be, I can be abstinent and clean with the food and a crazy man, a basket case, you know, and the, the people that usually get it are the people that are closest to me, my wife, sometimes my kids and stuff. So it talks about emotional sobriety. And one time I remember um, asking Paul, writing a letter to him, and saying, Paul, don't I have to surrender first? Doesn't it have to get into my subconscious? Don't I have to get on my knees? And he wrote me back a simple response. He says, Michael, he said, notice in the moment if you're feeling comfortable or uncomfortable. He says, if you're feeling uncomfortable, you're making a decision to stay in that, that discomfort. And it's as easy as, are you coming from a place of love or are you coming from a place of fear? And if you want to come from a place of love, you can make a conscious decision to come from that place. He it says it's very um, responsible, it's a big responsibility, but, but so is abstinence, so is sobriety. So, he says you can make that conscious decision. So, I've been kind of consciously deciding to make that decision. So, Paul says it really nice. Um, Let's see where it One seventeen is the acceptance thing. No. 4.17. Okay. So, here it says... It says... um, Perhaps the best thing of all for me is to remember that my serenity, which is what I want, you know, abstinence is good, but I want to be comfortable in my abstinence, is inversely proportional to my expectations. The higher expectations of my wife and other people, the lower is my serenity. The more I want people to show up on time and not disturb me when I'm giving my pitch, the, the less my focus, the less is my serenity. I can watch my serenity level rise when I discard my expectations. But then my rights try to move in, and they too can force my serenity level down. That self-righteous anger is a bitch, I'll tell you. And we're not even allowed that, that dubious luxury that normal men have. Um, I have to discard my rights as well as my expectations by asking myself, how important is it really? How important is it compared to my serenity, my emotional sobriety? And when I place more value on my serenity and sobriety than on anything else, I can maintain them at a higher level, at least for the time being, okay? at least for the present. Acceptance is the key to my relationship with God today. I never just sit and do nothing while waiting for him to tell me what to do. Rather, I do whatever's in front of me to be done, and I leave the results up to him. However, it turns out, that's God's will for me. Paul later on would talk about doing the stuff you know, just for doing it. But if you do it with um, the intention of having love instead of fear, it usually uh, turns out a little bit better. I don't always do that. I usually, I'm trained in my program. I, I'm a pretty structured and disciplined uh, home group in in my other program, right? And um, they teach you to ignore your feelings basically and just keep to go on to the next indicated event. So. Um, So there's a little bit of a balance there. I mean, i got to acknowledge my feelings and talk about them. And uh, otherwise, they're they're just going to end up in a binge. Uh, I must keep my magic magnifying mind on my acceptance and off my expectations. For my serenity is directly proportional to my level of acceptance. When I remember this, I can see I've never had it so good. Thank God for O-A, for Overeaters Anonymous. So... Um, that's my spiel. I've got like maybe one and a half minutes left. Um, the food right now, and but basically underneath it is just fear and lack of acceptance. But my cholesterol level is creeping up, um, and so. Uh, For health reasons, um, I found these little meat packets that I eat every morning. And now the pastrami and the beef is more prevalent than the turkey and the chicken. So what I'm committing, I'm trying to do, I'm asking God to give me the strength to do it, is to vary it one meat packet in the morning of turkey and then one veggie cheese and then one turkey, one veggie cheese, and to kind of cut out the pastrami and the beef you know, a day at a time and stuff like that. So I can get back to God and just get back to this acceptance. So anyway, I'm done. I appreciate you listening. Thank you. This is the time for questions only. There's no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leaders are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. And it tells me to please restate the question after it is asked for the podcast. Most times I forget to do that. Let's see if I'm recovered enough to try to do that. So, Mm -hmm. who's going to ask me my first question? Pine. Yeah. um, You said something that I really identified with. You said, like, you eat in front of the TV, that sort of thing, that sort of Mm solitude. And and I do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, if you could just expand on that and maybe a solution or. Yes. Um, so the question was that I eat uh, for solitude uh, in front of the TV. And uh, can I share a solution on that? And um, it's, in, it's interesting. This big book that I brought uh, years ago, I actually wrote down what my abstinence was. It was in O2 And it, on the bottom, it says, it's, it's called The Four-Eyed Rule. And it says, no, uh, don't, um, no TV don't watch TV unless somebody is home and it says, must call and get uh, my sponsor in person for any exceptions, no calls after 11 p.m. So I was kind of strict in those days and there was a 4 eye rule. I wasn't allowed to watch TV unless there was ne- another set of eyes on there. I'm, I'm addicted to the television, I'm addicted to YouTube and um, it just, I just don't feel good afterwards but while I'm doing it, it's okay. So if I commit um, to you know, watching a Clipper game and then I'm going to turn it off you know, and I ask God for help just to do what I say I'm going to do, um, it usually works. I, do you go to Starbucks? Uh, well, I go to Starbucks and I have this, this uh, smartphone and I'm addicted to YouTube. And so I, I didn't commit it to anybody, but I said, I'm just going to give myself 10 minutes on YouTube. And I was drinking the tea and everything and I was doing the 10 minutes and then the timer left And so then the head says, well, why don't you go to the library online and see what books are in the library? You know, I just I want to avoid reality and I want to stay in that as long as I can. So I think a long story short Er, is the fifth step. If I call somebody and do it, if I try to do it on my own, I say, I'm just going to set my watch. But when I take a fifth step, even if it's on somebody else's machine, somehow the power is there and I I can abstain from the behavior that I don't want to do. That really works for me. Not only with the TV, but between classes if I'm crazy and stuff. uh, I call and I say, uh, on the machine, I'm really afraid. I have a fifth grade class coming in. I'm taking everything personal. I'm asking God to remove my fear. I hang up. And that class, it's like another class. It's like my perception is all... So that fifth step helps. Call me. We could help each other. Okay. Yes, Adam. I'm sorry, you can go after Adam. Um, thank you for sharing. You will. Um, what's your experience with higher power? Would you... Uh has it, has it grown? Has it changed over the time you've My experience with higher power has it changed? Has it, has it expanded? So um, I'm of the, I was born in the Jewish religion. I wasn't never a practicing Jew. My father wanted me to get a bar mitzvah when I was 13. I went to Hebrew school with Jack S. for a year and, uh, and then uh, promptly just forgot about it. And I memorized some lines and I got lots of gifts. And I remember very uh, distinctly feeling uh, my lack of self-worth during my bar mitzvah. We had the reception and I remember I walked out and just alone, in my own bar mitzvah reception and I just walked the streets for a little bit because everybody was there and, and there was all kinds of love. I couldn't handle it. And um, so the bar mitzvah didn't mean anything to me. Years later, um, um, when, I start, when I had kids, I thought, well, what a dumb thing. My father wanted me to get bar mitzvah. Why? I, I want God to watch my kids a lot. I, nobody, I don't love anybody much more than I love my children. And, um, and uh, so I think my father meant that, you know, for me. Because he never had it. And he just wanted me to be a, maybe a little closer to a higher power. So, um Anyway, so, yeah, I delve into the steps and I work with other people and I pray a lot in the morning. We have a party line. There's guys that call me and while I'm driving to work, they're reading all kinds of spiritual stuff. And, uh, and uh, so I'm surrounded by program. Um, I've recently gone to a temple that is 12-step oriented. You're familiar with that. And, uh, and there's a lot of music there and it's, and it's vibrant and uh, I try not to judge the individual people that are running the thing, and on a Saturday, uh, on a Saturday after here, I'll go over there and for an hour and a half, and we'll sing and you'll talk Hebrew and stuff. And, and I've, I've kind of got it in, got into that a little bit as well. But I do feel a deepening uh, connection with my higher power, uh, whether I believe it or not. I look at my life over the last 25 years, and there's nothing but a benevolent higher power that could have given me all the, all the good stuff that I have today. So that's my answer. Um, yes? Uh, Actually, my question expands on that. Um, I want you to talk about your daily routine, your 11th step, you know, everything that you plan Spiritual fitness, what do you do on a daily basis? Okay, well, I have commitments at meetings, first of all, because when I want to stay home and watch the Lakers or the Clippers and I know I have to set up or greet or something, I'm there. I'm accountable to the meeting. So commitments are a very, very important part. Um, I call my sponsor on a daily basis whether I need to or not uh, because my head will tell me I never need to and it just gives me a habit of doing it. Um, I didn't do this in the beginning. It was sort of a gradual process, but I've been doing this for a while now. Um, My first phone call is now at 5.30 in the morning, a guy that kind of gets me up and reads a little inventory to me. And then I uh, call my sponsor at uh, 10 to 6, and then uh, another guy calls me at 6.15. There's a lot of structure in my life. And uh, then I, you know, I do my, my, my stuff. Oh, I actually have gotten back to getting on my knees with a, a guy that calls me or my wife. Um, it's nice to do it if you, with a significant other. Um, and we say the prayers together. And not only the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer, but whatever's going on. You know, please keep me focused on the moment. Please keep me um, abstinent today. And I'm just full of fear, God. and Just get me in the shower. You know, get me in the next indicated step. Um, and what do I do? And then at night I say, "Thank you, God, for another day of abstinence. Um, please grant me the strength and serenity for another 24-hour period." And. Uh, A little prayer that that I learned when I was a kid that's in my mind. Father, unto thee I pray, thou hast guarded me all day. Safe I am within thy sight, safely let me sleep tonight. Bless the world, the whole world bless. Help me to learn helpfulness. Keep me ever in your sight, so do all I say. Good night. I take anything from anywhere, you know, it doesn't matter. I just take anything that that feels like it's a higher power to me. So, yes. Thanks. Uh, thanks for Jared. Apologize for coming in late, and if you already covered this, then move on. But I always wonder about your relationships and and who you're in because of how you identify yourself. Yeah, you mean the, saying the last name? Yeah. yeah. I don't. I didn't do it on the podcast because you never know where that's going to go. But yeah, in, in my other structured program. Uh, my sponsor had taught me not because my my the way I pronounce my last name, you don't spell it that way. So it's not necessarily. But you're 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 being open to a newcomer because there's a million Michaels in both pro all the programs I believe in. So it's to help a newcomer. But I'm not going to do it. I mean, there's a. One of my idols spoke at our meeting last year, and and he refused to be recorded because his voice was so prevalent that, you know, you never know where it's going to go. So I believe in the level of press radio films and protecting the program. uh, But uh, in the meeting, I don't, you know, I say my last name. Yes? I have a question question about your relationship with Six and Seven. You've told us, uh, Steps Six and Seven, if you're your government, uh, you uh, told us this morning about your character know, defective judgment. It's also become clear that you know you don't act in an intense way on that. You acknowledge it, and uh, you've got it. I said act, not think. No, no. You know? I was just thinking. You know, you, think, talk to my wife. But yeah, no, go ahead. And, and uh, but do you believe, because it's been a while, that there are things you are doing or can do to in fact? Get rid of that shortcoming, or you just believe you can in seven stop acting out of it. Both, both. Oh, the thing was in step six and seven. Um, do you believe? Do I believe that there are things that I can do to um, to uh, alleviate the character defects, or just stop acting? or just stop, just stop that? I, I really believe that there's an opposite. And that, you know, where it says in our, in our literature that you know, God doesn't leave a void, it has to be replaced with something else. So I do this occasionally when I feel the worst about my wife. And I'm, thinking, I'm looking at all the clutter around the house, and I'm looking at you know, how she's not doing this and how she's not doing that. If I go up and hug her, I swear to you, 99% of that stuff goes away. Because she kind of responds. And because you don't know what's going on unless I act on it and I'm ashamed to say that I've acted on it for many, many years it's a hard habit to break but uh, when I do the contrary action and usually there's always a contrary action the, the mishigas goes away mm-hmm. so yeah yes uh, you had mentioned you had a son in the day, uh, um, have you had for a two-part question for your children Seems to suffer from this disease of concussive breathing. Conversely, what's their reaction to you in a way? Is it something they acknowledge, they understand, they don't understand, you share it with them? Okay, the question was um, I have a son in, in AA. And uh, are there any other children that I have that might have this disease of compulsive overeating? And what's their reaction to me for being in the program? And how do I deal with their what my perception of what their disease might be? And yeah, I have a son, my 17-year-old, Nicky, who just uh, likes starch. And he likes sugar. And he doesn't like vegetables. And uh, and he doesn't eat meat. And he's very, very finicky eater. And everybody in the family, Nicky, why don't you eat? Why don't you eat? Why don't you eat? And I see him going like this. And so I leave him alone. I, I like him to take a vitamin, <laughs> multivitamin, you know, and I always say, Nick, did you take your vitamin today? And the more I let go, the less I am uptight about what's going on. And then I get uptight about the family going, Nicky, did you And I want to say, leave him the fuck alone, excuse my language. But uh, but even that I got I gotta be uh, okay. Um, my daughter e- uh, Issa came with me last week to this meeting because we had to um, take her car to the mechanics, and uh, she's um, on the heavy side. She might she might be one of us. The literature tells us not to. Do that, even though we do it anyway. So she sat up here with me and I didn't say anything. And it was so cool because Josh spoke last week and, you know, Don is Josh's dad and to have that sort of connection. So, um, yeah, they know the way I eat. They see the way I eat. They know I have a big appetite. But I think over the years, I'm pretty much of an attraction of this program, and I pretty much let them go, even though the head and the emotions are still saying, oh, why can't I have control? Why can't they come with me? Why don't they? Why don't they? When I let go of my son, my older son, who was clean, who was clean and sober, I mean, I, literally, I locked him up. I saw him in a mental institution. It was, it was horrible. Um, and um, five minutes... how how my intervention was that and it really doesn't have anything to do with me although my head thinks it does I went to my AA sponsor and I said could I do you think I can make an appointment with Sean's psychiatrist and just tell the psychiatrist my story and and we did that the three of us met and I told him my story because the psychiatrist wanted to put on more antidepressants that was the he says you're bipolar you're never going to be off this medication and so I said, well, this is what this is what I'm doing, blah, blah, blah. And the shrink looked at Sean and says, well, you know what? Why don't you go with your dad and check out his home group? And uh, he might save you a little bit of pain, you know? Why don't you do it? So my son trusted the shrink, mm-hmm. you know, not his dad necessarily. But he heard that was like his first sponsor. And like I say, my kid's been off everything for nine years, clean and sober. He jumped in more than I ever did in that structured home group. So yeah, it's a hard thing and then plus I go to another 12-step program that talks about uh, releasing with love. So that helps a lot. I, yeah, I, I have a village. Uh, newcomer and then Nick. Yeah, I, um, I, I mean, I'm new to this obviously, but uh, I have a beautiful nine-year-old boy and I see him kind of behaving a lot of ways like me. And, and you, just, you want the best for your child. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's something you can do to help him? Because he, I see him just, just <laughs> compulsively overeating, I guess. You know, I mean, and I don't, I don't know what to do. Take him to the doctor. Right so time is concerned about his nine-year-old he wants the best for him he doesn't know what to do what can he do to help his kid and again I think the answer for me is to abstain and work the program to the best of my ability and let him see that I'm doing something for my disease and also my sponsor tells me a lot you know your kids aren't you because my self-obsession you know magnifies everything oh he's going to do I did that when I was a kid oh I did that he's going to do it not true not true. My son is clean and sober, you know. My mother died of this disease. My kids are doing just fine right now, you know. So try not to, I try not to impose my self-obsession on my kids. They're not. When, you st- when I start believing in a higher power, it's easier for me to release my kids to that higher power because they have higher powers as well. And if it's working in my life, why should it work in their life? So it's called well, let go and let the higher power. Can you talk about the evolution of your abstinence through your time in your life? The evolution of my la- abstinence? abstinence, yeah. a- of abstinence right of my food. You mean my food plan or my abstinence? You're definition of your own abstinence forever. A- okay. Well, the, my food plan... No. But, well, the question was the evolution of my abstinence in my of abstinence. So my definition of abstinence would be taking the fifth step with my food on a daily basis, okay? I usually abstain from recreational sugar. I don't eat cake, I don't eat ice cream, I don't eat that blatant, but you know that I eat that sugar-free yogurt. Um, um, Let's see, Um, pray and meditate on a daily basis. I call my sponsor on a daily basis. I take an inventory on a daily basis. It's evolved, I didn't do this all at once. And if you were here from the beginning of my pitch, you kind of heard a little bit about the evolution and how it's involved, evolved. But every bit as important, it's probably even more important than the food, is the conscious contact with a higher power. And I definitely get that from this program. Um, I'm, I try to take the structure and discipline I learned in my other program. To, to Overeaters Anonymous, because I can come here and judge you guys. My other program, you got to get there an hour early and you stay late and you show up for your commitments and you, it. You, if you're going to speak in front of people, you put on a coat and a tie you know, to represent a program that's saving your life. Would you do it if you go to church? Would you do it for a job? Yes. So, okay, I'll do it. So, but I think I can get lax in this program. You know, And then if I don't, if I show up in a coat and tie and somebody else doesn't show up in a coat and tie, and then the judgment goes all over again. So especially to the people I sponsor and the people that are duly addicted, you know, take this program seriously because this program will kill you. And I just know that because I've been coming back so many, so many years and I know the truth today. Uh, it can change. My sponsor is 55 years clean and sober. He says, I'm grateful to be sober. He says, but... He says tomorrow I may not be that's the nature of my disease. So I had 7 years in this program and I went out so I don't want to I want to go there. Yet. Thank you for letting me share.